On this episode, I talked to Bjorn Freeman Benson. Bjorn was most recently the CTO of Envision, which aside from being a breakout hit product, also uses a completely distributed model for its 800 plus employees, a truly unique environment to learn from. Prior to Envision, Bjorn was the SVP of engineering at New Relic, where he grew the engineering organization from three to 300 engineers through the IPO. Bjorn has also spent time at both Microsoft and Amazon, and it's interesting to hear his take on the engineering cultures at both. Enjoy. All right. Well, I'm very excited to be here, and um, I'm sitting across the table here with my guest looking out at downtown San Francisco with an unending stream of cranes and construction. Uh, But without further ado, I'd like my guest to go ahead and introduce himself. I'm uh, Bjorn Freeman Benson, and I have uh, done a wide variety of software uh, companies over the years, including open source and closed source SaaS companies. Um, have uh, interesting claims to fame in my past, including being uh, one of the national winners of a Baskin Robbins ice cream dessert creation contest. <laughs> and that's definitely one of the key reasons why you came here. So. Bjorn, thank you so much for coming. I think a lot of folks don't know, but Bjorn's uh, based in Portland and he flew down for this podcast and I'm sincerely grateful. I'm also grateful because um, I think this might be my mom's favorite uh, podcast of any of the ones I've done. Um, growing up, she was a fan of Bjorn Borg, the tennis player, and also the band ABBA that has a singer called Bjorn. So I feel that the moment she'll hear your name is Bjorn, this is like golden. You're this is going to be a hit. Yeah, and when I was young, people couldn't pronounce my name because there were no Bjorns. <laughs> and then Bjorn Borg became famous, and uh, thank goodness people learned how to pronounce the name, and, and now people can, can actually say, oh, hi, Bjorn. Yes, <laughs> and ask you about how you won those five Wimbledon titles. Yes, and, and I can tell them in great detail. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much. So um, I feel that when we're talking about someone's journey, um, it helps to start in the beginning. So... Um, I was doing some research for this, uh, for this episode and, and looks like you studied at the University of Washington and you studied computer science. So the first question that comes to mind is, um, what made you, when, when you went and did that, uh, is that a major you knew you were going to do before you even started or is that something you discovered once you got there? Yeah, I was into computers even when I was, uh, in middle school, I actually built, uh, some of the early computers that were out there and, and. I've just been into computers all along. And so then when I finally made it to university, I was like, yes, that's what I'm going to do. And I immediately set off to study computer science and I got all of my degrees from the University of Washington. So what made you uh, keep going um, past your undergraduate studies um, instead of just starting to work after after you got your bachelor's? Yeah, well, I, I love this stuff. I mean, I was just having a great time. University of Washington at that time, and, and I'm sure still is a, a really nice school. A lot of smart people there and interesting things. And so I just love doing that and I wanted to keep doing it. The other thing is that I was considering being a professor. In fact, I was for a, for a number of years before I went back to being a, a commercial engineer. Um, and I realized that in order to be a professor, you have to have a PhD. And if I was going to do that, I needed to do that before I made any money. <laughs> because if I ever started making money, I would never go back and get my PhD. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a self-limiting thing. So. One of the things I really like about Bjorn is, like me, he really um, shares a kinship with humor, and that you can see that in a lot of things that he does professionally. But 
I was looking, and you can all look at his LinkedIn profile, and in it, he says, from years 1991 to 2009, I did many interesting things in many interesting places, and leaves it at that for your imagination. So I thought, since we have you here, you could maybe embellish just a tad. Just a tad on, on some of those interesting places. Some of those interesting places <laughs> that maybe our, our listeners would, would know about and relate to. Yes, I worked for a wide variety of companies over the years. And like I said, I, I was a professor of computer science for a while and loved doing that um, until the university politics dis and I disagreed about the future. And let's see, and then I worked for startups that both succeeded and failed. I worked for a very interesting startup that was building reconfigurable hardware for cell phones. So the basic idea is that in your cell phone, you could either have a general purpose processor with lots of transistors and every clock cycle, the transistors change state and they use up a lot of power to do that. Mm -hmm. But you can compute any algorithm or you can have special purpose chips that do things like filtering functions and searching for signals in the air, but they use up a lot of silicon even though they're very power efficient. So we had designed a piece of silicon that could run about five of the standard algorithms. Um, so it was not completely general purpose, but also not completely one purpose. And then the idea was, how much could you compile onto that chip from writing C code? So my part in that particular startup was um, writing the C compiler. I have a team of people and we all write the C compiler so that you could write a normal C program or C++ program and then it would extract out the algorithms that would run on the special purpose chip and then take all the rest of them and run them on the embedded ARM. That was a really cool project. Um, too bad the company didn't go anywhere, but it was a really cool project. Uh, the increase in battery technology basically made that unnecessary yeah. in the future. Um, so, you know, I've, I've worked at a variety of companies, big and small. I uh, worked actually at Microsoft for a while, worked at IBM for a while, big companies, worked at teeny companies. So what, what era um, were you at Microsoft? Uh, let's see, I'm trying to remember, that was in the 90s. So I think it was in the late 90s. So Bill um, Gates was still CEO? Yep. Yeah. Got it. Um, uh, and uh, I, I think you'd mentioned I think there that you also had worked at Amazon, is that right? Yeah, so after my, my stint at Microsoft, I went and worked at Amazon back when they were just transitioning from books to books and other things. <laughs> <laughs> so that was many, many millennia ago. Um, so is it true that they, uh, at Amazon, they, they, um, when they started the company, there was this culture of um, being frugal and that there were these wood-like desks that you would get from, I think, Home Depot and then over time to maintain that culture, they still had those desks. Were, were those desks a thing when you were there? Oh, definitely, yeah. Um, so one of the one of the great things about that company, and there, there are a lot of great things about that company, but one of the great things about that company is they really understood the value of money. And so every company I've worked at has had sort of a guiding principle behind it. Uh -huh. um, and the one at Amazon was other people's money. And so one of the things that Bezos just really drilled into everybody was, how do you grow the business using other people's money? So, for example, the reason that he started out with books, at least this was the story I was told, you know, could actually be true, um, is that you could order the books from the, uh, from the uh, middleman, whatever they're called, the wholesaler, the wholesaler um, but not pay for them for 60 days. Mm. And so because of his computerized ordering systems, somebody would order online, he would order them from the wholesaler, ship it to the customer. The customer would have the book for 58 days, and, and Bezos would have the money or Amazon would have the money for 58 days before they had to pay the wholesaler. And so they made money on every sale that they made. Um, you know, it's just part of this. And so one of the lessons that I learned out of Amazon is the value of 
capital and other people's money and how to take the best advantage of that when you're building a business. Yeah, they're, and they still continue to maintain that culture, I think, and it's taken them to, to super great heights in Jeff himself. Um, so uh, just exploring those two you know, behemoth companies, uh, both in Seattle, Microsoft and, C- and, and Amazon, um, you know, what are some things that struck you about how those cultures were, were different, the engineering cultures? Oh, well, let's see. So Microsoft was a much older company at the time than Amazon was. And so Amazon was very much a, you know, a startup. Let's just do whatever we can to get things done. Mm-hmm. And so, in fact, when I joined, they, like I said, had just moved from books to books and music and books and music and toys. Um, and the way they got that done at the time was they just cloned the entire stack. And so the bookstore was a complete copy of the code. The music store was a complete copy of the code. And the toy store was a complete copy of the code, which was expedient, but of course, increasing technical debt, like there's no tomorrow, right? Um, Whereas Microsoft at the time was a much more mature company and had a very solid engineering process behind it. And even then they were doing some amazing things around gathering crash reports from all of their tools out there because they had so many users, they could look at all that data and figure out where the problems were in the code in ways that nobody else could, and they were taking advantage of that. But that was a, a much more mature engineering process than Amazon had at the time. Now, you know, Amazon, it's, it's what, been 20 years since then, and, and Amazon is, is an amazing engineering culture of its own now, right? Right, and so this was, when you, when you were at Amazon, was AWS a, a thing? No, in fact, um, AWS started just about the time I left and in, in fact, it, at the beginning, the Amazon code base was, was just one giant C++ program. Um, and so they hadn't, hadn't even moved to services. Oh, wow. Interesting. Um, uh, so when you were um, working at Amazon, do you remember what the, in that Seattle area for, for tech talent, for recruiting, well, what was going on in terms of how, what types of candidates or what types of yeah, aspirations people were going to Microsoft for versus going to Amazon for? Well, at the time, everybody was going to Microsoft. I mean, even then, everybody was going to Microsoft. Amazon was, you know, having difficulty recruiting people because it was a tiny startup with no, no future. Right. Okay. I mean, if you, how, how wrong we were then, but, you know, <laughs> um, so, you know, the only sort of people who would go and work for a startup are the same sort of people who go to work for startups today, who are people who are willing to take a greater risk. You know, the, the people who wanted sort of a more stable corporate, software life, you know, went to Microsoft. Now you could, you could go to any one of those places. Right. Do you think that the, these years later, if you were to think back, and I, you know, you're still very plugged into the Pacific Northwest tech scene, um, has it flipped where everyone is going to Amazon now? Oh yeah, everybody's going to Amazon or Google. Right. I guess Google has a, a big presence up in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, Google also. has, uh, in Seattle, has three offices, maybe four offices now, and then they're building one, another one right next to Amazon. Which I think is hilarious. It's it's their Google Cloud office, and it's literally across the street from Amazon. Yeah, can't imagine why. <laughs> uh, very very interesting. Okay, so uh, take us to um, that moment when you're. Tell us how you get to the start line at New Relic. How that comes about. Yeah, so I had you know, like I said, this interesting career of working for a number of different places, and I had worked my way up from being just a, a software engineer, and we all started there being a junior software engineer, and I'd worked my way up to being a tech lead and then being a manager of a few people, and manager of a few more people, and by the time, for instance, I got to that um, uh, 
hardware startup. I was a director and I had people who had people, you know, and so on. And I realized as I was moving my way up through the management chain and having larger and larger projects that I had reached the, the limit of my ability to manage with the particular management style that I had been using, which is a very command and control style. It's the one that we sort of all learn if we watch television shows or something where the guy comes into the room and says, now people, everybody's going to do X, you know, and so on. And of course, without any formal management training, that's sort of what I picked up as the way to do things. And I'm a very gung-ho guy. And so, of course, I've done that. And I sort of reached the limit of how I was, the, the size team that I was capable of running uh, with that style. And of course, eventually you, you sort of irritate people enough with that style that they don't you know, you're not as effective as you could be. Mm -hmm. And so I, I saw that in myself and I said, you know, if I'm really going to be more successful in software and software management, I need to learn to manage through indirection, through delegation and less through command and control. And so at that time, uh, the Eclipse Foundation was just getting started. And Eclipse being a giant open source project um, has no command and control structure at all. And so I took a job with the Eclipse Foundation running the Eclipse community. So I was responsible in some sense for the annual releases of Eclipse, um, but not, I didn't write the code. I coordinated all of the various teams that did write the code. Lots of smart people wrote the code. So I'm not trying to take anything away from them or all the things that they did. Mm -hmm. My job was to coordinate all those pieces. So in some sense, you could say I had like 700 engineers working for me, but of course, none of them worked for me. I could only affect them by, by influence. Right? Got it. And for some people who may not know, just to catch people up, tell a little bit what, what the Eclipse Foundation was. Well, the Eclipse Foundation, which still exists, um, manages the Eclipse open source projects. The biggest one is the Eclipse Java IDE, um, which was an outgrowth of some work that we had done for IBM in, the, in previous years. Gotcha. Um, and uh, so it's, you know, it's still quite a popular IDE, although have to use NetBrains instead, but um, you know it's it's out there and, and people still use it, and it was it was quite significant. Anyway, so we had you know, something like seven hundred volunteer contributors who were either vo complete volunteers or they worked for other companies, you know, so they actually had bosses. And so my job was to sort of corral all of this and get us to the finish line every year for our annual releases. Right, and it was probably at the time that you were doing it, I would guess top five open source project behind Linux and. I mean, I, I can't think of ones that were much bigger at the time. Yeah, so, and, and very significant too. It, it fundamentally changed the IDE marketplace. Um, and so it was great. And um, through that experience, I believe that I learned how to manage more effectively without telling people what to do. And so when, when I'd gotten good at that, I was looking around for what to do next. And a friend of mine in Portland had just joined this little startup, New Relic. Um, and at the time, New Relic had, I'm, I'm guessing on the numbers here, that I think it was 12 people. And the reason that's a good number is because it makes me number 13. But anyway, <laughs> it's about that size. It might have been 14 people and I was number 15. But anyway, a very small little company. And uh, it had started in San Francisco. Lou Cerny, the, the CEO, um, had started it in San Francisco and had never intended to have a Portland office. But um, he was having trouble finding a developer to join the effort. And uh, he'd known Bill from a previous company, and Bill, who was in Portland, said, oh, I'll do it, but I'm living in Portland. And then little by little, we gathered enough people in Portland, we decided we we're just going to build all of engineering in Portland. And so we ended up with all of engineering in Portland and all of the rest of the company in San Francisco. 
And so what, uh, what position did you join them in as employee number 13? Yeah, I joined as the uh, first engineering manager. There were three engineers and then me. Um, so that's sort of silly that they needed a manager at that point, but we were already anticipating growing to a much larger size. So were the other three engineers in Portland? Yeah. Okay, interesting. So um, yeah, talk a little bit about, uh, well, we should first, uh, just for listeners who don't know, what at that time, what did New Relic do? Yeah, so New Relic was a Ruby performance monitoring tool. And so the idea is if you've written your application in Ruby on Rails and you wanted to get application performance metrics about it, um, the New Relic plugin plugged into that, instrumented all the Ruby code automatically, and then gave you data about how your application was running. So when you got there, had they did they have a shipping product that customers were paying for? Yeah, we had just gotten our first set of revenue. So I, I didn't join pre-revenue, I joined pre-any significant revenue. Right. Got it. Um, do you remember like what round of funding they were at by the time you got there? I, I don't remember what round of funding it was. It was a pretty early stage, I'm guessing. Yeah. So um, uh, how many years were you, were you there? So I was there for seven years, and I grew that engineering organization from three to 300 people. Wow. Um, and, uh, you know, and during that time, we went through an IPO, and I got the thrill of standing on Wall Street and, you know, Lou rang the bell and it was all very cool with the IPO and so on. So I think that the thing uh, that a lot of you know listeners would love to ask you if they were here is trying to you know drill into um, trying to break up that journey from you know managing a team of three to three hundred into a couple of like milestones in terms of size, perhaps um, say you know three to twenty, the, the twenty to hundred. And the, and the different challenges along the way. So we can we can do this in real time since I'm sure it's, it's difficult to do that, but maybe give us some thoughts on yeah, those major Yeah, so the, the interesting thing about this is at the rate that we were growing, we were basically doubling every year. Um, the company was doubling every year. Engineering was sometimes doubling every year, sometimes a little less than doubling every year. But at doubling every year, that effectively means that you have a different job every year. So if you break that up, it's, you know, there was what it was like in year one, and there was what it was like in year two, and what it was like in year three, and so on. And it was effectively a different job. You know, the job of managing three, four engineers, I wrote a lot of code, right? And then, you know, the next year that got big enough that we started having teams that had maybe their own managers, or at least their own technical leaders, right? And then, you know, the next year there were a bunch of those people. And then the next year, well, then we had, I had started adding a second layer of management in there, you know, and, and so on as it went up. And so, Every year, you know, I'd have to sit down and think about, well, next year I need to find, by, by this time next year, I need to find somebody to do the job I'm doing today mm -hmm. so that I can take the next job up the chain, right? Um, so I was constantly out looking for not only how do you build this organization with all these great engineers who were doing fantastic work, but um, how do I find people to take the job that I'm currently doing and enjoying so that I can take another one? Interesting. So... Um in, in that early phase growth, uh, at what point, let's say in terms of roughly number of engineers, did you dramatically stop writing code or, or doing, you know, coding on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, I, I don't remember. Um, I, I do remember that we needed, uh, you know, we had just done the Ruby from the beginning and then we, had, Saxon had done the Java agent um, and was doing the .NET agent. 
and we needed a PHP agent. And to write the PHP agent, you had to write a bunch of C code, which I love doing. So I just wrote the PHP agent during the day and um, did my management job during the evenings. And uh, that, that, was a, that was your typical startup 100-hour week sort of period of time. Wow. And after that was over, I had hired a couple engineers to do the coding that I was doing. And I don't think I wrote any significant code after that time. But that was maybe, maybe 30 or 40 engineers by then. So um, you, I think you laid it out quite nicely. You, know, you started off with managing three engineers, more engineers, then you started managing managers, and then there was two levels of managers eventually that you had to uh, manage. How many of those uh, leadership situations had you experienced in the past? So prior to New Relic, I had been a director. So I've been a second level manager. I, had, I was a director. I had managers under me and they had engineers under them. Okay. That was the largest organization I had run before that. Um, and so then at New Relic, I ended up with three layers of management um, by the time I left. Got it. And so um, do you remember at which place you were given um, the, the first time opportunity to be a manager and the first time opportunity to be a manager of managers? Uh, so the first time I was a manager was way back in the past um, when I worked for a company called Data.io um, that was building prom programmers back in the days when you had proms. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then when did you get the opportunity to be a manager of manager? Because that's a step function difference in kind of management complexity and what you're doing. Yeah, I, I went from you know, just managing to um, the next level, what's call it one and a half layers, where I had team leads who had teams, but they weren't managers of those teams, right? Um, so the, the difference is that they were responsible for sort of the day-to-day -day activities, but they weren't responsible for writing reviews and doing that sort of thing, right? So it's sort of a half step in management. And I think that was a good thing along the way because I didn't have to go just from being a first level manager to a second level manager all at once, mm -hmm. right? Um, and there I, I worked for a company called Object Technology International when I had that. And I, I had about, about 20 people working for me through that mechanism. So what's always interesting to me is how uh, folks have picked up the skills to, to do those jobs that you did on that, say, New Relic journey. Um, and it sounds like you had these opportunities before. But were there um, any of those prior experiences where you felt like you got better or useful education or training to, on how to do this job versus just learning on the job? Yeah, that's, that's sort of one of the, um, the disappointments in my career is that I haven't had anybody who helped me get better at the job all along. And so all of the things that I did, I had to self-train on and self-introspect and so on. And so I've... I've been slower about making that journey than I would have liked, um, you know, if, if I'd had assistance along the way. And I've made more mistakes along the way, which, you know, is both personally disappointing for making mistakes. And I also regret all the mistakes I made that, that caused people pain, you know, along the way, because I, I was learning along the way, right? Um, as we all do. As we all do. But so as a consequence, I've tried very hard with all the people who work for me to provide them with that training that I didn't get. Um, and so I, I worked very hard with all of the managers and directors and eventually VPs who worked for me to provide that extra level of, of training. So for example, at New Relic, um, we had an annual, 
annual technical conference. We got all the engineers together once a year and um, talked about what we were doing and what we were planning to do and so on. And that first year with three or four people was really easy. We just had it in the meeting room. Right? <laughs> <laughs> the second year, we had to have it in the large meeting room, right? And by the end, we were renting a, a particular property in Portland called Edgefield, which is a former um, either poorhouse or insane asylum, I don't know which story you go by. <laughs> um, and we had hundreds and hundreds of people attending our conference. Um, but one of the things along that journey is that as we got more and more people in that annual conference, it occurred to me that we were going to spend a lot of money, both in terms of time and mostly lost opportunity costs to get people together. And so it needed to be a really good conference, not just your average technical conference where you get together, but we had to make it worthwhile to spend the time doing that instead of building the product that mm -hmm. we needed to succeed, mm -hmm. right? And so to that end, I worked on making sure that everybody knew how to give a good technical presentation who was going to give one. And so um, any one of the people who worked at New Relic at the time, and they still do this even after I'm gone, they do lots and lots of practice talks. You had to do at least two, three, or four practice talks of your full talk before the, the event itself, so that when the event came around, every one of the people who was on stage speaking was a worthwhile, valid, useful presentation about, I mean, they knew the technical material. That wasn't the question. The question was, how can you present it? Nobody teaches you how to present these things as an engineer. They just say, oh, now you go and speak at that O'Reilly conference. You're like, I've never done that before. Well, I like, these engineers have never done this before. Let me provide a learning opportunity for them. And so I set up a training program for all of them to get better at doing technical talks so that we would have a good outcome. This is the sort of thing that I sure wish people had done for me. You know? <laughs> so you learned the hard way? Yes. <laughs> uh, well, it definitely paid dividends because um, I actually first met Bjorn at a CTO conference and it was, I thought, one of the better, uh, better presentations. So it seems like you had just put in your reps and time and so uh, it was a great payoff. I think that's, I think that's great. Um, so uh, talk a little bit about how you go uh, like towards year seven of New Relic, what your mind frame is like in terms of what takes you from that to your next, your next stop on the career trajectory. Yeah, so um, New Relic had gone through its IPO and all companies after they go through an IPO sort of change a bit. Um, and it, it changed in ways that eh, I wasn't as happy about. Um, and so I was thinking about, well, what do I want to do next? And I thought, you know, I've, I've done this and I've done this and I've done this other thing. And so what haven't I done? And these in, the recruiter for Envision came around. You know, they'd hired some recruiting firm and they called me up. Um, and uh, it sounded like the same job that I'd just done. So I'm like, eh, I'm not that interested. Um, but then they said, this company is 100% distributed. I'm like, ooh, that's interesting. So, you know, every company I had worked for before was an in-office company, mm -hmm. and in, including New Relic, where the engineers were all in Portland and the headquarters was in San Francisco, but it was, was still, there was a 300 people in Portland, right? right? Um, or uh, Object Technology International, where we had many offices around the world, but we still had offices, yeah. right? Um, but here at, at Envision, there were, there were no offices. Everybody works from home. And in fact, the company is now 700 and some odd people and everybody works from home. Um, it's amazing. And, and it's an interesting thing. I thought, you know, that's something that I don't know how to do. So I would like to join that company and 
build the same great engineering culture that I built before, but in a distributed fashion. Um, and so that was the challenge there. And then I also like the product. The Envision product is it's a fabulous product. Um, you know, it's the market leading product. They, people love it. Um, and it's an interesting crowd of people that I haven't worked with before. If you look at my history, it's all been engineering tools for engineers. Mm -hmm. And um, this was in, you know, building tools for designers. And right. designers are interesting, artistic people, and it's really fun working with them. Yeah, and uh, it, it is very much loved, and we use it a lot. Um, and uh, I can see your attraction to it as well. The, so the first thing, there's a lot to unpack there that's super interesting, but let's just start with some basics. So when you arrive at Envision, how many engineers are in the team that you're running? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly, but I think basically the numbers are like 60 when I arrived and 260 when I left. Okay, completely distributed, as you said. Right. Were there any pockets of uh, geographic concentration for those? So the company does have pockets of geographic concentration simply because there are certain areas of the world where there are more people who are better at software or design. So, for instance, New York City, there are a number of people. San Francisco, there are a number of people. London, there are a number of people. Um, but even the people in San Francisco, just that they either work out of their house or they go to a WeWorks. Um, and not even the same WeWorks, because there's many WeWorks in San Francisco. Right. Um, so, you know, here we are in San Francisco. There might be maybe 40 or 50 Envision employees in this city, but they probably rarely actually encounter each other. Interesting. So you, you arrive and, um, I mean, 60 people is, is, it's fairly established, but it's all distributed. Um, how were, uh, how was, you know, communication organized in terms of standups and uh, engineering team meetings? What did that look like for this distributed team that might be a little bit or a lot different than uh, an in-office team? Yeah. So when I joined, the, the reason that they would hire someone like me um, is because the previous thing that they were doing wasn't working. If it had still been working, they would have just kept doing that and not hired someone like me, right? Um, and so what had happened was that the company had had this original product and it just became this incredible hit. Like it, it's exactly the right product for designers. Um, and so it just took off like a rocket. And so they just started hiring people to handle the demand of the features and the maintenance and the operations and so on without putting in place the management structure for that. Right. So when I showed up, there was no management structure in engineering. Um, it was a very flat organization and it ran, it ran in sort of, I'm, I'm trying, to, trying to say this in a nice way. You can imagine that an organization that grew very, very rapidly might have a number of problems. And none of the problems are due to the people, just the fact that it grew really, really rapidly without organization. Right, and there just wasn't time. To right. Um, and so I came in to establish that organization and structure. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I did for the, the, the three years I was there, as I put in, um, you know, I organized as a set of teams. Every team has a manager. The, the, the teams are collected into, we call them zones, uh, you know, of, of different uh, different emphasis, and there's a zone that does collaboration, there's a zone that does the studio product, and there's a zone, and so on. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, there's there's VPs above those, and it all rolls up that way, and then reorganize the code base as well to match that same organizational structure, sort of the inverse Conway maneuver, right? <laughs> um, so that in 
going from a single monolith that everybody was attempting to modify at the same time into each of the teams owning their own vertical structure of services um, and then interacting through APIs, uh, you know, and a, and a Kafka bus on the back end, right? So the combination of in putting in place an organizational structure and an underlying technical structure that match that organization allows the company to just move at a rapid pace right now. Um, I, I just feel like those, like those are super necessary conditions to get the most out of uh, a distributed team. And it feels to me that the demands for being very good at that kind of process and layout are greater, uh, the necessity for them is greater in a distributed team than in an in office team where I feel that some of those things you may not do as urgently because you can get away with it with other in-person time. Yeah, so there's a, there's a couple things I learned from doing this distributed company thing. Um, one of them I would say that I sort of knew in advance is that the larger a team gets, the more paths of communication you have in, in the team, right? I mean, this, everybody knows this. Mm -hmm. And so you try and keep teams relatively small to compensate for that so that you don't have to have a lot of meetings and so on, right? Um, and it, it struck me when I joined Envision that it was necessary even more so in a distributed company because communication is expensive, right? And so one of the goals in the organization I built was to keep the teams very small so that then you wouldn't have this problem of having to have lots of meetings or too many layers of communications and so on. Mm -hmm. We have modern communication tools. We use Zoom, we use Slack. Um, that are quite good, much better than we had, say, 20 years ago or even 10 years ago. But the problem is even a Zoom video meeting has a couple, has three flaws to it. Um, and trust me, Zoom is great, but it takes time to set up, right? I can't just wander by your desk or your office and say, hey, Bobby, right? right? I have to set it up. And that, that extra effort of having to set it up causes me to have fewer communications than I would if I could just wander by. That's mm -hmm. one problem. Second problem is all of these communication mechanisms basically restrict you to a single speaker. So if it's a one-to-one -one conversation, I'm speaking or you're speaking and it's all good. If we have a meeting with five people, typically in a meeting with five people, I might be saying something and you might be going, uh-huh, yeah, I like that, I like that, or the opposite, right? <laughs> um, um, but in a video meeting, you can't do that because of the technology. The speaker will flip over, will latch onto you instead of onto me and will stop It'll mute me or, or something, right? Like the technology just doesn't support that kind of meeting. Right. And so the types of meetings you have change in a, in a video meeting. And so you need to keep the teams quite small to keep that from happening. And then the third thing is even in a video meeting, you're on a two-dimensional media instead of a three-dimensional thing like we are sitting mm -hmm. here in this room, right? right? Um, and so, well, you can see my expressions and you see my hand motions and I, I talk a lot with my hands and you saw that when I was on stage at, right. the, at the, the summit, right? Um, and you see some of that in the Zoom, you don't see that as much as you do in person. And so the, the types of communications are sort of, it, it's almost like black and white versus color, mm -hmm. right? You get the same thing is there, but somehow it's harder to see. And so the, the meetings are a little bit more difficult. So knowing all those things, the, the organizational design, in my point of view, was to minimize the size of the teams to limit the, basically the friction that those things bring to the table in a distributed context. Um, and the, I guess, what, what, what did you find um, that, um, you didn't expect in that distributed situation when you arrived? Like, what were preconceived notions, positive or negative, 
that turned out to be not true based on that experience? Hmm. Oh, goodness. Um, well, one of the things I found was that it was much lonelier than I thought it would be. <laughs> um, and um, e even, for instance, in Portland, we there were, I think, in the end, there were 35 Envision employees in the Portland area. Right. Um, and, uh, but we weren't working on the same project. And so we rarely met each other, right? Whereas in an in-office company, you bump into people all the time because you're all physically in the office or um, you talk to them a lot because you're on the same project and you like meet in a meeting room or with a whiteboard and you talk about something. Right. So, so there's, a, there's a bunch of human social contact that you don't get in a distributed company. Just this casual, uh, casual isn't quite the right word, but this ad hoc contact that you mm -hmm. don't get, right? Um, so you replace that in a distributed company with other contact. So, you know, I spent more time with friends of mine and so on, but it wasn't the same as working with people, mm -hmm. right? Um, on the other hand, the flip side of that, the positive flip side of that is, where do you get time to focus? Nobody drops by your desk just to say hi. <laughs> Which, you know, is one of the classic problems of working in an office is that you go, oh, I just can't get anything done. So then I have to work late when it's quiet to get things done. Right. So, well, in a distributed company, all the times are the quiet times. And so you can get a lot more done when you sit down and, and need to focus on things. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a big believer of distributed teams, as you know. And uh, one of the things I'm constantly trying to uh, experiment with and do better with is uh, that I think is much easier in an in-office situation than distributed teams is building camaraderie. I think there's this like this, uh, as you talked about, ad hoc benefit you get when you see someone. And I think one of the positive side effects of that ad hoc-ness is you, you build uh, kind of mutual goodwill, which helps teams perform better in difficult situations, I find. And I think when with a distributed team, especially with a new person joining, it's harder uh, it's harder to build that out. So I was just curious, like over the times that you were at Envision, what kinds of things uh, did you do that found that worked well to build camaraderie with these teams? Yeah, I didn't really have a magic solution. The, the magic solution that I wanted to do, but we just couldn't afford to do, was each time someone new joined, mm -hmm. would be to get the whole team together for a week or two, um, you know, to welcome the new person and introduce the code and get them all working together. Right. That would have been perfect, but at the rate we were growing, we just we simply couldn't afford that much travel, um, both in terms of dollars and in terms of time. Right. Um, you know, the 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 company was growing it, still is growing at over one hundred percent per year. That's a lot of new people, right? <laughs> um, so we we just we just couldn't do that. So we we defaulted to getting together a few times. Um, you know, at least every I wanted every engineer to bump into every other engineer at least once a year. Um, if not more often than that. Was that always in the same place or did you move no. around? So we just chose whenever we had a team that we wanted to get together, we would find the best place for all of the flights. My, my goal was that everybody should be able to have a nonstop flight to the location, mm -hmm. right? And then because we're distributed, we could choose a location anywhere. So we choose one with good weather, right? Makes sense. Um, so you talked about these uh, pockets of geographic concentration. You had San Francisco, Portland, obviously, um, and New York. Were those the 80% of the geographies and time zones that you had distributed team members in? So 
engineering was more distributed than the rest of the company. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, we tended to have more U.S. employees than non-U.S. employees. Um, who knows why? That you know, every time we hire someone, their network would typically be U.S. based, sure. so that we reach out to those people. Or our recruiters were really good at because they're U.S. based recruiters at finding other people in the U.S. or something, right? But so we tended to be U.S. based, but we didn't restrict ourselves to that. Right. You know, so we had we have some really excellent people in Argentina, um, guy lives in Colombia, Lisbon, um, a little group in Prague, you know, just just all over the place, right? Um, we tended to, as a company, work uh, East Coast hours. So it limits the number of time zones you can go in each direction and still be effective. And so we tended not to go much farther west than the west coast of the U.S., mm -hmm. um, simply because the time zones don't work so well. Right. And typically not much farther east than Eastern Europe, again, because the time zones don't work very well. Gotcha. And so did the, did the folks that were working in you know, uh, Lisbon, did they work uh, sort of uh, East, you know, New York East Coast time business hours? Yeah, everybody, we, we had the idea in the company of um, from the very beginning of having a core hours East Coast time. Mm -hmm. And so everybody tried to work those core hours, which meant those of us on the West Coast had to change from being normal engineers who get up late to people who get up early, um, which has fundamentally altered my biology, I think. <laughs> and now I can't get up late anymore. But, um, you know, after a while you get used to it. Yeah, you get, you're more productive too. Um, yeah, because nobody bugs you. No way. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so true. So, um, did you organize the team around those uh, uh, as best you could time zones and um, and geos, so that you know the people that were working on one particular bit of Envision were clustered in one particular time zone? Or well, that would have been a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, we didn't. Um, and, and like I said, we, it would have been a good idea. I think that some of the teams might have been more effective if we had tried to keep the time zone spread less broad on them. Um, but we were growing so fast and we had such a need for these specialized talents that we were looking for that when we found them, we would just hire them. And so that ended up with teams that were spread across more time zones than, you know, in an ideal world you would have wanted to have. Yeah, I get I can see that, but still, it feels like you contained it within certain parameters, so it was still manageable, and over you could get that overlap uh, with that core East Coast time. It sounds like yeah, and and I think it's working quite well. Um, you know, the the engineering team is is very productive, and and people all seem quite happy about you know, like I didn't get any complaints that oh, you know, I never get any time to talk to those people in Prague because the people in Prague had shifted this way and, or this way, and the people in the West Coast had shifted this way. And, right. Right. So how, um, it, you know, it sounds like you organize the engineering team into a certain uh, functional or they're working on different parts of the product, you know, logical product. Um, so how would the, the whole process of um, requirements being created by, you know, historically a product management organization and that then getting over to their engineering counterparts for questions, clarifications, estimation, and prioritization, what, how did that process work for this distributed team versus, you know, kind of your, your traditional in-office? Yeah, well, we, we tried to use the same process that we've used elsewhere in every successful startup that I have talked to, mm -hmm. all the ones that you work with, right. um, use, which is that 
you know, the, the product manager works with the team. It just, they happened to not be in the same physical location, but nobody was in the same physical location. So it wasn't an extra handicap for them that, you know, like um, when I was at New Relic, some of the product managers were in San Francisco and some of the engineers were in Portland. Other product managers were in Portland. The product managers in Portland were much more effective with the engineers than the product managers in San Francisco because the com as New Relic as a company hadn't worked out how to have a distributed team. Mm -hmm. So, um, for example, we had all these meeting rooms with giant TVs on the wall and you would have the team would go into the room and you'd dial up the TV and you'd have the one remote person. It's just not a model that works. Right, right. right. Whereas at Envision, even if we were in the same WeWorks, we would have separate rooms and we would all call into the meeting as if we were separate so that nobody was advantaged or disadvantaged more than anybody else in the meeting. Yeah. Right? So, for example, one of the best product managers we had at Envision, Anthony, is here in San Francisco. And one of the best engineers on the team that he works in is also um, in San Francisco. But they would, never, they would always dial in separately onto the Zoom so that you couldn't tell that they were perhaps even in the same WeWorks location. Yeah, it kind of levels the playing field of that. Um... Uh, communication dynamic and friction you talked about, it's equal. Right. And so uh, you don't get any unnatural imbalances, I guess. Yeah. And so then, you know, once you take that into account, you know, every one of these teams had three to five engineers. It had a, an engineering manager. It had a product manager. And at Envision, because it's a design company, a designer. Every team has its own designer, at least one, sometimes more than one, right? Mm -hmm. um, which is unusual. Most software companies you'll find, you know, maybe seven to one ratio of teams to designers or something. But Envision being a design company, lots of designers because it's important, right? Yeah. And so every one of these teams was, you know, to tried to be self-sufficient in terms of where the product's going, how it works, how to build it, how to operate it. Did you guys operate on uh, using an agile sprint methodology? Yeah, so when I started building the organization, I basically let every team decide which agile process they wanted. Um, some of them used sort of a Kanban process and some of them used a Scrum-like process. Um, it, shortly before I left, we decided we would move everybody over to the same regular uh, sprint cadence um, just because it was getting big enough and it was getting disorganized enough that we needed some sort of regularization across the organization. And so how long uh, were the sprints? It was two-week sprints. Got it. So for folks, uh, especially you know, founder CEOs that are thinking about uh, starting a company or are starting a company and hiring a VP of engineering, it may be useful just to hear it from your voice of, at least in, in this last, at Envision, you know, how you set up that process of product manager has an idea concept for something they want in the product and how that gets uh, from that ideation into a scheduled sprint. Oh, gosh. Um, I, I hardly feel the expert on this because we were just using both at New Relic and at an Envision and even at Eclipse before then, we we're just using the same process that sort of everybody uses, which is you sit down and you talk about that and you figure out what the priority list of things that need doing are. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the engineering team says how long that's going to take and the, the product management team knows what the market needs and the designer knows what the product needs to look like. The, the key in all of that is to make sure that the designer, the product manager, and the engineering manager or technical lead um, have a good conversation. It doesn't work if it's a waterfall mm -hmm. because then you end up with things that are potentially very expensive to build and you end up spending a lot of effort and time building something that there could have been a cheaper alternative to. 
right? So you, the, the product manager might come and say, well, we need feature X. And the engineering team looks at that and goes, well, feature X, that would be expensive. That could be like a three-month project. But we could give you something like X minus. Mm -hmm. And X minus, we could do that in three weeks. And it's 80% of what X is. Is that good enough? And if you, if you can get the team to have that conversation so that it's not a waterfall of you will do exactly this to this is what we're looking for. You know, what's the fastest thing you can get that's like that? Mm -hmm. um, you get a much more productive team. And I'm talking about the team, not just engineering team, but, you know, the, man the product manager and the engineer and the designer all together working together. Did you use this notion of, you know, pods or squads with like a constituent from design, a constituent from product management and engineering? Yes. Yeah. Um, so uh, another thing that companies vary with is if you look at, you know, a 12-week period, um, some people are able to cram in um, six, you know, two-week sprints. Others have a certain number of two-week sprints and then some sprint zeros in between for planning and estimations and, you know, clean up from the previous spent or prep for the next one. And, and what, how did that work for, for you guys? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty rigorous on, um, you know, if it's a two-week sprint, it's a two-week sprint and you don't have fake time in between. I <laughs> hear <laughs> a very strong opinion from me there. Um, and the reason why is that those, those iteration zeros or the fake time or whatever are hiding work that is actually necessary that you should be taking into account. And so as a result, your estimates for that you're coming back with are artificially low. And you're, you're basically not actually getting good data to make good decisions, especially if, if you're the CEO. Mm -hmm. You're not getting good data because we're hiding behind these, these iteration zeros where we're cleaning up from the work that we did before. No, the cleanup should just be part of the work. It is part of the work, right? And the, the estimation is part of the work and the operational maintenance of the system is part of the work. And if you, you just can't pretend that it's not there by putting it in a separate place. So the, the model I came up with for a while and it was, it was working for a while and then we moved to another model, um, which also worked. But the model was that we divided the engineering time up into two buckets. There was uh, product work and engineering work. We called the PW and EW, right? And product work was anything that the product manager had asked for. And engineering work was anything that the engineering manager had asked for. And so engineering work would be things like fixing operational scripts that were causing us to spend a lot of time on call, right? The product manager isn't going to say, oh, we should do that. It's just not something they're thinking about, mm -hmm. but it's work that needs to be done. And so we would break that up and we tried to maintain about a 25% EW, 75% PW split on the teams. And if we had that ratio, you know, adjusted right, then we, we felt we were balancing the, the two aspects of the work correctly. And so um, uh, things like uh, bug fixes, um, estimation work for so, future sprints, all of that. All of that. And, and bug fixes are a great one because um, often people say, oh, bug fixes, that's definitely EW, engineering work. I'm like, no, it's not. It depends on who asks for the bug to be fixed. If the product manager says, you know, our customers are complaining about this bug, I really want this bug fixed, that's product work, right? If, if the engineering team says, wow, we're being called every day, every night at 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m., and 4 a.m. on call, and we're sick of doing that, we want this bug fixed, that's engineering work, right? Yeah, so it truly depends on the messenger and that process. Um, so one of the things uh, that I loved about um, 
the previous time we went where you, you gave the presentation was you talked about uh, n number of uh, things that went wrong and there was like a really funny story in each of the cases. And I forget what the number was. Like, it, was it was 17. 17 things. And so we, we don't have time for all 17, but, uh, and it's been some number of months now since you gave the talk. So from memory now, let's, it'll be interesting to see which one struck with you. But if you were just to pick like the top three, what would those be that you always seem to you know, think about or that you enjoy talking about? Oh, goodness, the, the top three things, let's see, the, the title of the talk, I think, was 17 Things That We Should Have Known But Didn't. That's right. right. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is the Venn diagram of the top three of those. Right. <laughs> Not sure that they're the top three, but... Um, so one of the classic ones that, um, uh, that, that people keep suffering from is forgetting to put indices in databases. Um, and so it works great in your test cases on your laptop, right. and then you put it in production under load, and it just the, the system falls over, right? Um, and it's just it's one of the classic things that you should remember to do, and people forget to do, right? Um, a, a more interesting one was the fact that in the very first version of, of the New Relic databases and, and the Envision databases, is that we use the MySQL auto increment for row IDs. Mm -hmm. um, which is fine as long as you have one database, but it breaks down when you have more than one database. And so at Envision, we, we have a product called Private Cloud where companies can have a private instance of the Envision stack for themselves. And so we want to move the data from the multi-tenant site over to their single-tenant site. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, when you do that, uh, now the IDs have to be different. Um, and if you ever want to move them back, you can't move them back if you've been using the auto-increment IDs. Right. Um, and so, you know, it's one of those things that seemed convenient at the time, but really we should have used UUIDs um, for for all the, the foreign keys, right? Um, and that was one of the stories yes. that I told there, right? Um, so, you know, that... I actually wrote, I remember that was the one I wrote some notes around, <laughs> that particular one. And it turns out UIDs aren't that much harder to generate, and yes. you know it, it allows you to do all sorts of things. And it's one of those things that, in hindsight, yes, we should have known that. Um, but for expediency, we chose not to early on, and then it later came back and bit us, right? Um, and so there, are, I think there are a lot of things like that in doing a startup where you have to make a technical decision about something that you can do something either in a really really fast way or a way that you actually know is better. And I'm not talking about Hacker news engineering, where you just go out and find the latest fancy thing and you're going to do that thing. Mm -hmm. But like you actually know because you've done this a number of times before and you've seen other people do this times before that, that it would pay off to take a little more time to do it the right way. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's a challenging trade off for a founder CEO to make because you know, he's burning through cash and trying to get customers and boy, that getting it out as fast as possible might be something that you'd really want to do, but you have to make that balancing act between if we do that now, I know that later we're going to pay for it. And if we don't take into account the fact that we're going to have to pay for it by maybe hiring another engineer to clean up after this engineer or mm -hmm. whatever it is, then, you know, eventually it's going to do you in. And I've, I've met a number of people who founded small companies who were done in by their technical debt because they simply couldn't recover from a bad decision. I remember you know, there was one startup I worked for. This was way, way back when I was when I was just in college. Um, in, this was back in the dark ages of the days before Microsoft Excel. Um, we were building a spreadsheet for mainframes, hmm. and one of the things we had to do was decide how to paint the screen because we were we didn't have the video displays and so on. And 
we had made a expedient decision to paint the screen from top to bottom. And it turns out that that is a bad decision on a VT100 terminal. And we should have painted it from left to right. Um, and, and it eventually was so slow that it basically cost us the business. You know, I, I think it's, a, it's an interesting um, balance that is more art than science. And I'd be curious to know, for that particular balance that we're just talking about, what your thoughts are on uh, how much of that is having a good artist at the helm that understands that balance, and how much of that is um, a certain degree of technical debt can be forgiven by immense product market fit and demand for the product that you're building? Oh, definitely the latter, right? So, you know, basically growth solves all problems, right? Um, and, and Facebook is a fantastic example of that, right? You know, the original Facebook was all written in PHP, for God's sake. Right? <laughs> um, and yet, look at how successful they are, right? And they overcame that debt of that thing to, to get to be successful. So as long as you've got that 100% per year growth, you, you can take on a huge amount of debt because you can pay for it with your future revenue, basically, right? right. Um, the, the trick is paying for it before that growth slows down. Because every one of these companies, the growth slows down, except maybe Facebook. But anyway, um, you know, every one of them goes through this S-curve where for a while when you found the company, you don't think anybody even knows about you and nobody's using your product. And all of a sudden, then you get into this massive acceleration curve um, where the, the first derivative is positive and the second derivative is positive. And as long as the second derivative is positive, you just keep shoveling cash into the machine and you keep growing like mad. And then at some point, that curve levels off into a, a more rational growth rate. Um, and so when that second derivative starts going negative, you better start paying back that debt because all of a sudden you're not going to have that, that massive growth to pay off the decisions that you're making. So I think that's really the decision that you have to make is as long as your second derivative is positive, you can sort of make any number of mistakes. Right. When your second derivative goes negative, then you have to start running your business differently. Yeah, I, I definitely see it that way. Um, but I think a lot of people don't necessarily look at those particular dials until it's too late. Yeah, is the issue. I, I strongly recommend looking at that doc. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's giving you good information. So um, one thing that's near and dear to my heart is uh, onboarding uh, new members of the engineering team um, so that they're productive as quickly as possible and uh, effective members of the team and the team itself is, is, you know, the output has gone up. Um, were there things, uh, given the ad hoc nature of meeting in person was not possible in a completely distributed team, uh, did you find that at Envision you had better onboarding process because it was necessary, like it was just a, a demand you had? No, I, I felt that we had a not as good an onboarding process as we did at New Relic. At New Relic, we, we actually hired people to do nothing but make the onboarding process good. Right. Um, and we could do that because all the onboarding was happening in one facility. Okay. And so we could have a specialist in that facility to do that. And the goal at New Relic, and my goal at Envision too, which it didn't achieve, but the goal at New Relic was that you should be able to successfully commit code to production on day one. Interesting. So that meant you had, we had to build enough infrastructure to set you up, get you a ticket, get you all the permissions to deploy that build and deploy that ticket. Mm -hmm. And we would give you some ticket, like there's a spelling error. Sure. Right? Like we wouldn't expect you to actually know the code. Right. But the idea was that all of the mechanism would be set up so that you never had to worry about it again. Okay. Right. Um, and so we, we had one guy, maybe more than one now, um, whose job was to just make sure that that mechanism was in place. And if it ever took more than a day, 
had to write some more automation to make it take less than a day, right? Um, and Envision, because we weren't all in one location, we never quite achieved that, and it took people a while to spin up. But do you think it's an achievable goal in time, or are there always going to be inherent kind of uh, constraints with, with that distributed angle? Oh, I totally think it's an achievable goal, right? You should be able to you should be able to have all the infrastructure necessary. Now, maybe you can't fill out the HR forms and all those things. Right. I, who knows? I'm, I'm not part of the HR department. I don't know what, what's needed there, right? Um, you know, go through your sensitivity training and, and all the things that happen. And when you get bigger, that might take more than a day. Yeah, yeah. Right? But so, so, but we could still get you on day one, you know, and you could just make it so your tools are Docker images that you put onto your machine and fire them up, right? I mean, there's there's all sorts of mechanisms that we can do to make it possible to put that infrastructure aside. Like, you know, we got to the point at New Relic where we were giving new engineers um, uh, Macintoshes that had been pre-imaged with all of the tools that we used so that you didn't have to install all the tools, right? Big time saving right there. Exactly, but couldn't do that at Envision because for a while, people went out and bought their own laptops and then got reimbursed. Got right? it. So we didn't have a central place where we imaged laptops and sent them out, you know. But it feels like a solvable problem. Yes. About I, I think that if you put some energy behind it, you could solve that problem. And if you're growing at, as we were at New Relic, 100% per year, um, that means that every year, half the organization, actually more than half, because a few people leave and so you have to replace them. And, you know, so more than half the organization is new people. Right. So you're, you're taking a huge productivity hit if those new people aren't efficient early on, like over half of the organization. <laughs> <laughs> so when you start looking at numbers like that, it becomes really important. Now, if you're at a, a slower growing pace, like I have a friend who has a startup that's growing at 30% per year. Heck, if my paycheck grew at 30% per year, I'd be a happy camper, but you know, he's considered a slow growth startup. You know, So they're only hiring a few people every now and then. You can get away with having a less efficient process because it doesn't hit you that often. Right, right. But now that you've, you've spent years kind of um, uh, leading a completely distributed engineering team, um, and you've done it the more traditional way also for many years, um, would, you, would you recommend the fully distributed engineering team to others? So here's the interesting thing. Um, glad you brought that up because I wanted to mention the other thing I learned about running a distributed organization is that I think the job of management is N plus one harder in a distributed company than a non-distributed company. Um, and this presents a number of problems. One is if you want to hire a second level manager, like a director mm -hmm. at a distributed company, you really should be looking for somebody who was a VP at a non-distributed company and for that level of skill is what you need for a director at a distributed company. Interesting. At the size we're talking about with Envision, right? Um, so that, that presents a number of problems, one of which is how do you get first-time managers? Because if it's an N plus one hard problem, you really should be looking for somebody who's got the second level management experience to do that first level job. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult in a distributed company to bring somebody up from not being a manager to being a manager in a distributed company. And you know, I think the reason that it's, and this is my argument, the reason that it's N plus one challenging in, in a distributed company of this size is because you can't go and just meet people face to face, mm -hmm. right? So for example, if you and I are having a nice conversation, maybe we're having a one-to-one, -one, and I happen to say something which really pisses you off, and but you're a polite guy, so you don't actually let me know that, and you walk out the door, well, if we were an in-person company, the next time I walked by your office and I glanced over there and you glared at me, I would think, 
that's odd. Bobby never does that. <laughs> and then I would stop by and I'd say, well, what's going on? And you would say, oh, you really pissed me off. I'm like, oh, that's not what I meant. And, and we'd work it out. Right. right. In a distributed company, what's going to happen is I, I've pissed you off. I, I don't know about it. The next thing I hear is I get a resignation letter from you that you're going <laughs> off and working for, for Google. I'm like, what happened? Last time we talked, it was so good. Everything was fine. Right. <laughs> and so the, the skills you need as a manager are greater in a distributed company because you have to compensate for the fact that I can't just walk by and see that you were unhappy. Right. Right. I have to find other mechanisms to learn that about you. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's a, that's an N plus one level skill. Right. Right. So I think in a, in a larger distributed company, you have to hire more experienced managers to make that company work. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, in a, in a smaller company, you know, you're talking at 10, 20, 30 people, I actually think the distributed model is the way to go. Um, you know, I think, I, I don't understand how anybody can start a company in San Francisco these days, right? <laughs> uh, just, like, the, the cost of living is so high here. How could you get five people to, you know, sort of do the Apple startup in a garage thing? Right. Right. You know, you, you couldn't afford to not be paid for six months while you're building your product because... I mean, well, all the subway rates are already occupied by homeless people, right? <laughs> so you couldn't be one of those people while you're building your product. So the only, I think, way to succeed is actually to build a distributed company and get great people from all over the globe in, in your small company to join and get together people that you've worked with before and so on. Right. I just think that at a certain point, you, you then have to think about, is that fully distributed model the right model as you grow larger and larger? Right. Right. Um, and, and my current thinking about that is that, in fact, instead of the fully distributed models, you get larger and larger. You should use what, what I've been calling the pod distributed model, except I'm sure there's a better name for it, where instead of having everybody work from home, you have little pods of people around the world. So, you know, you know, if, if you and I want to go into business together, maybe you have a few engineers here in San Francisco who work with you and I have a few engineers up in Portland who work with me. Mm -hmm. And then I get... You know, and then we make sure that the project that I'm working on in Portland is completely contained in Portland. And the project you're working on in San Francisco is completely contained in San Francisco. Maybe you're the front end and I'm the back end, mm -hmm. right? And then I get to work with the engineers and we have a whiteboard and we bounce ideas off each other. So we get all those advantages of the in-person, mm -hmm. but we also get the advantages of being able to hire people anywhere in the world. Because if we now find somebody in Austin who says, yeah. I want to I join you, you're like, great, let's start another pod because you're so fantastic. We'll have a pod in Austin, right? right? I just feel that that is, again, I'm biased, as folks who know me uh, would contest, but I, um, I think the world is moving that way uh, for the scarcity and recruiting challenges that you talked about. I just, people are, there's going to be an infinite amount of ambition to start companies. And for the foreseeable future, that's going to require software talent. Mm -hmm. And for the foreseeable future, that software talent is very difficult to come by uh, in, in cities like these. So, Something has to give, and I think kind of this experience that you had at Envision is a hint of... Yeah, and then, you know, another thing we found at Envision, which, you know, in, in hindsight, of course, is obvious, is that it's very difficult to hire junior people into a distributed company. Because if you think about the experience of being a junior person just coming out of university or maybe coming out of a code school and coming to join a company you get lots and lots of advice and assistance from your colleagues sitting next to you, mm -hmm. the people on your team. And you're like, oh, I can't remember how to reset my Git um, after I've accidentally checked in a file. How do I do that? I just turn to you and say, Bobby, can you help me out? And I don't feel so stupid because you're sitting there, right? right? 
Whereas if I'm remote, you slack that. I slack that, then I feel kind of dumb, right? <laughs> I mean, it's in print and you know, I'm interrupting you and, right? And so just the, the nature of being a junior person is much more difficult in a distributed company. And as a company gets larger and larger, you need a diversity of people in the company, not just diversity in terms of men and women and, you know, minorities and that sort of thing, but a diversity in ages and talents, right? One of the problems that we had at New Relic is as we grew, we emphasized, we, we focused on hiring senior people because we wanted people who could go in and modify the virtual machine of Java and, you know, all these hard technical problems and deal with more data coming through the front door than you can ever imagine and, really hard technical problems. Mm -hmm. And we, we realized as we got to a certain size, I'm going to guess about 50 engineers, that there were a bunch of, let's call them grunt work problems that needed doing that nobody was doing. Because first of all, the senior people didn't really want to do those because um, they did them back when they were junior people. Right. And secondly, they were way too highly paid to be spending time doing those jobs, right? And so they just weren't getting done. Right. And I was like, oh, I see. I haven't been hiring enough diversity. And so I started hiring more junior people. Yeah. And so that every team would have this range of things all the way up from distinguished engineer type problems through down through senior engineer type problems, all the way down to, you know, first year junior engineer type problems. Right. Um, and it's important to have that. And it was more difficult to do it in vision because it's very hard to hire a junior person into a fully distributed environment. Interesting. And it probably has um, different recruiting dynamics also. I would say because of that, right? I mean, I think you're not, obviously you're not going to have a university recruiting thing as your foray uh, for, for filling the pipeline. You're, you're going to use maybe really Well, you more. certainly could. I mean, Envision doesn't, but it could. Um, but then you would have the problem of having all these junior people. Right. Right. Um, the, the problem that we had in Envision for recruiting is that we didn't have a building, right? Like here in San Francisco, there's Salesforce Tower and then I was walking around and there's LinkedIn on a right. sign over there. Yeah. And like, you know, and so every day when you commute back and forth to BART, you see the Salesforce Tower and you see the LinkedIn sign. And then one day when you get frustrated with your job, and you're like, I'm going to get another job. You're like, where should I apply? Oh, I remember LinkedIn. I could just go over there. Like, so you just, it's this constant marketing of who you, of, that you're out there. Right. right? Envision doesn't have it because it has no buildings. Yeah. Right? Like in no locale does it have it. Now, it has a great brand. Mm -hmm. And so, in fact, Envision has a plethora of designers wanting to work at that company. And so as a result, has fantastic designers at that company because you get to pick of this infinite stream of talent coming in. Right. But much harder time recruiting engineers because Envision doesn't have a brand as a place that you go to do interesting engineering, even though there's a lot of interesting engineering going on there. Right. Right. Um, so, you know, New Relic has gotten to the point where people go, oh, there's interesting engineering going on there. Um, but it's known for that. Right. Uh, even though it doesn't have a sign in downtown San Francisco. But my point is, it, I think the distributed company is actually a handicap in recruiting in some ways because until you have that brand, mm -hmm. people don't think about you. Right. Right. Yeah. So um, it's all about kind of I think building up that brand early and uh, I think trying to find pockets of talent where uh, you can get access to people uh, where in, in the local locations you just can't. Right. And so that's why I think this, this pod remote is the right thing to do. So, you know, so you, you hire somebody great in Salt Lake City and they go out to the local meetups and they say, Hey, I'm, I'm doing compilers for this startup and we're doing fun stuff. And you know, oh, people go, oh, I want to work for that. And then they'll join you. Right. Um, and, and you don't get that if you're completely distributed. Yeah. So I think 
So that's, you know, that really resonates with me because that has, I sort of stumbled across that, but then discovered there was a pattern for why certain centers were doing well and certain centers weren't, which is I think when you, when you go into this remote model, it's very important you understand you must have kind of senior leader slash champions uh, that can really network and run that local area for you. Um, right. It's sort of like the, the local version of the company. Exactly. Right. And, and that's what you're replicating. Correct. And that scales. Uh, so, no, this has been fantastic. Bjorn, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming down. Oh, you it. bet.